You're listening to episode 126 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? We made it to New York. In case you missed our huge news, Moonlin and I just made an epic cross-country road trip move from California to New York, and 88 Cups of Tea will now be produced from the publishing capital of America. We were on the road for 13 days, driving from San Diego up to Zion and Horseshoe Bend, then down to Phoenix, then crossed over through Dallas and Nashville, then up to Chicago and moseyed on over to Ann Arbor and Detroit, and then we drove through Ohio to get to Pittsburgh, then Maryland, and made our final stop in Philadelphia before making our way to New York City. This road trip was a whirlwind of new adventures that I'll always remember, from breathtaking scenery throughout the different national parks, to a man who banged on our car window at 4am in the morning in a parking lot, to finding a pubic hair on a brand new towel at a hotel, to watching Netflix shows in the car during a 4 hour standstill traffic in torrential downpour of rain, to the most uplifting conversations with our community at our 88 Cups of Tea meetups, and actually meeting our listeners in real life. It's so crazy! These past 13 days have been some of the most memorable times of my life and the most incredible way to transition into a new chapter and a new city. Thank you so, so much to our listeners who made the time to come out and say hi to us. You all are so amazing about showing up on such short notice. I loved our conversations. Each and every one of you are inspiring, and I am so grateful we have you in our community. If you're super curious about our road trip adventures, I saved all of the videos and photos from our road trip in our Instagram highlight. And to find that, you just have to head over to our Instagram account at the very top of the page, click on the circle that's called road trip. Once you click on that, you can watch all of the stories saved from our adventures. Now on to the next part of our intro. I want to say a huge thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps and it means the world to us that you took the time. And thank you so much to our listener who recently rated us five stars and wrote this mind-blowing review. I have so many feelings about this podcast and they can't possibly all fit into a review, but I'll try. 88 Cups of Tea has become something I always look forward to. Yin is an absolutely charming, extremely thoughtful interviewer, and every episode she's able to guide the guests into open, deep conversations about craft, business, writing, and their life in general. I always feel like I come away from this having learned something new. I found new authors to love because of this podcast and rejoiced over hearing from authors I already idolized. There's just a quality about Yin and her interviewing style that inspires honesty. I don't think I've ever heard a writing podcast that is this thoughtful and this personal. Beyond teaching me a slew of craft-related things, 88 Cups of Tea helped me come to terms with who I am. It was the V.E. Schwab episode where Yin and Victoria spent about 30 minutes discussing how they came to terms with their sexuality that I finally admitted a truth I've been running from. I am bisexual. I've spent 22 years denying this about myself because I grew up in an extremely homophobic town. But Yin's honesty in that episode gave me the courage to be honest with myself too. No one except for myself and whoever ends up reading this review knows that yet, but just listening to that episode and finally admitting that truth to myself has made it feel like the curtains were pulled back and the light was let in. 
I never thought I'd find a podcast that gave me that kind of space, but that's what 88 Cups of Tea does. It gets to the heart of everything. When I feel lost or hopeless or like I want to give up, this is the podcast I turn to. Thank you, Yin, for creating a podcast that gave me a home and a safe space to figure out not only my writing, but myself. I am all teary-eyed right now. Thank you so very much for taking the time to leave such a transparent and vulnerable review. I am really so honored that you're able to find yourself and to hear that the show is even a slight part of that journey for you. You are so brave and you're such an inspiring human being. And I'm so grateful to have you in our community. Thank you again for that really heartwarming and thoughtful review. Now on to our guest. I'm thrilled to have Kelly Lloyd Gilbert on our show. Kelly is the author of Conviction, a William C. Morris Award finalist, and her newest novel, Picture Us in the Light, that comes out next Tuesday on April 10th, so be sure to grab yourselves a copy. In today's episode, Kelly brings us behind the scenes of Picture Us in the Light, from discussing the inspiration and catalyst for her new novel, to a detailed look at Kelly's hands-on research process for the story. She walks us through the importance of strong character building when crafting conflict scenes, how to craft authentic characters whose experiences are different from your own, and how to weave empathy into your story by reflecting on personal experiences. Further into our conversation, Kelly shares advice on coping with and overcoming writer's block to move forward with your work, how you can work with your support network to strengthen your story's plot lines, and she also shares why it's crucial to give yourself permission to step away from your story. To download a really helpful writing prompt that Kelly created exclusive for 88 Cups of Tea listeners, be sure to head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Kelly dash Loy dash Gilbert. Kelly is also taking over our Instagram account today and we're giving away a copy of Picture Us in the Light to two lucky 88 Cups of Tea listeners. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch our takeover and for the giveaway instructions. Now let's dive right in. Kelly, how are you? I'm good. How about you? I am so good and I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I was completely going crazy about your work and what my girlfriend was saying about your work. So I'm very excited. Kelly, as per usual, I love starting off with asking each guest how you first fell in love with writing. For me, I have loved to write since I was able to read. Some of my earliest memories are at school, we made these little books that we wrote ourselves and they were covered in carpet samples that were these card covers. And that was my first experience of quote unquote publishing a book. And I think I was really hooked starting at age six, which is so interested in stories. And also I think growing up kind of before the internet and then my parents didn't have a TV in the house. That was my main escape into these other worlds that were always so interesting to me. Were your parents very supportive about this? They have always been really supportive. The panic when I was in college and I was like, I'm going to be a writer. They were like, oh, (laughs) but what about health insurance? insurance and they would send me applications to Starbucks because I was like, oh, at least I can get health insurance. So I think they definitely had their freak out about, oh God, my daughter is going to be like destitute forever. But they've been super supportive. They read all my books, even though I know the types of books I write are not what would be their first choice in reading. They come to all my events. Aww. My dad Googles me every Aww. week. That's so sweet. At some point and be really excited. Hi, Papa Gilbert <laughs> and Mama Gilbert as well. Thank you for creating this beautiful, smart, brilliant baby of yours who creates beautiful work. They're going to love you. That's awesome. Can I join for family dinners? Please do. Kelly, I was looking up your bio. I would love to dive in a little bit more. What did you go to school for? What was that like? Could you walk us 
us through a little bit? So for undergrad, I went to UCSD and I did a major in literature with an emphasis in creative writing, which was the closest thing my school had to a writing degree. And then I was planning on graduating and writing full-time, which is horribly impractical. So I'm glad I didn't do that. But what I ended up doing instead, which was also kind of impractical, but really fun, was I went and got an MFA. So I did that in San Francisco. After that, I was writing essentially full-time and then also working an actual job that actually paid while I was continuing to write. Your writing is so powerful, very, very strong, and very solid. That's why I was like, where is this girl studying? Which school was this in San Fran when you got your MFA? I went to San Francisco State, which I would super recommend. They have a great program and it's really affordable since it's a state school. I loved it. I felt like it was really life-changing for me. Awesome. So before we dive into your book even more, could you give us a snapshot of the world of Picture of Us in the Light? I grew up in Cupertino, California, which is the home of Apple and kind of the heart of the Silicon Valley. And it's an area that's majority Asian. And I felt like the experience that I had growing up there was one that I never really saw reflected in stories because I think it was kind of a unique place to grow up. It was like super competitive. It was a minority majority. And so I was really interested in writing something that I felt reflected the place that I lived in. And so I had a lot of fun doing that for Picture in the Light. So it's set in Cupertino, and it's about a senior in high school named Danny Chang. And he is an artist, and he's just been accepted to the Rhode Island School of Design, which is like his longtime dream. Um, and everything's going pretty well on that front. And then he discovers this like really shocking secret that his parents have been keeping from him. And everything starts to unravel, and he realizes his whole future is being threatened by it. So good. Where did this idea for Picture Us in the Light first come up? What was the catalyst for that? So it's funny, actually. It started out as like a totally, totally different story. I started writing it three years ago. The character was also named Danny and it was set in the same place in Cupertino, but it was totally different. He had this brother who was sick and he was trying to get a bone marrow transplant for him. And I was working through different drafts of the story with my editor. My publisher is at Disney High Parents. I was working with them and nothing was kind of coming together. And I felt like I was getting maybe closer and closer to the heart of the story, but it just wasn't really happening. I think I couldn't figure out quite what it was I wanted to say or what I wanted the characters, who I wanted them to be. And then I was about to finish what was going to be hopefully my final review vision. I was about to start it actually right before the 2016 election happened. And Mm. I think that was actually this really huge catalyst for the story. The result took me by surprise and I was a mess as many people I know were. And I think in dealing with the fallout of that, I was like, oh, now I know exactly what I want to say. Thinking about, okay, what does it mean to be an Asian American in this America? What does it mean to have immigration status that might not be your ideal. What what does it mean to be queer? Like all these things in America, those were the things I was suddenly extra interested in exploring. From my own experiences, I have dealt with racism towards my family, especially in Florida. It was like a rude awakening. I mean, I've definitely bumped into some people in New York City, but there's people in my town that are not aware of Asian American people because like all white town I grew up in. But then in Florida, it was blatant, very, very in your face. And I was shocked. And I remember my mom also told me a story when she was in Miami, a cop pulled her out when she was pregnant with me and my dad. And they clearly had no reason to pull her over except that she wasn't white. You grew up in a primarily Asian town. Mm-hmm. Did you have firsthand experience with racism or anything that was derogatory towards our people? Or have your parents gone through it? I remember reading the part about chalkboard on the sidewalk. The way you were able to express that was so clear and so vivid, so real and truthful. As if Mm -hmm. you experienced it your 
yourself? Yeah, I think I would be surprised to meet anyone of color who would say they haven't experienced racism, actually. Growing up, I feel like in some ways it was kind of a bubble in that I didn't have that experience of being the only one in the room a lot of time, which I think in some ways is really insulating. I remember in high school, I traveled to this really small, very rural town, and that was maybe my first experience in a place like that. I was with somebody who lived there, and so people were friendly, but I remember definitely feeling they would say things to me that I found really horrifying. And there was sometimes the sense that it was supposed to be not about me, like, oh, you're one of the good ones. Even that really weighs on you. I've been out occasionally where you have the racial slurs said either in front of you or next to you. Um, I'm also mixed race. And I think people feel sometimes very comfortable saying things that they wouldn't say otherwise just based on that. But I think also just growing up in a place where historically it was very white and then it became steadily more and more Asian. And I think there are a lot of people who aren't comfortable with that. It was one way when they grew up and bought a home there. And now they send their kids to school and maybe their kid is white and their kid feels like a minority. I think there was a lot of, in some cases, not in all cases, but I think there was a lot of kind of underlying tension under the surface sometimes. The Wall Street Journal actually, the year after I graduated from high school, wrote this horrible article about white flight in Cupertino. And it interviewed a bunch of people talking about how uncomfortable they were. And I think you started to feel those microaggressions happening a lot of times. So I think in some ways, you know, I have a lot of privilege. I've been super lucky, but I think it definitely is always there. And I think it's hard just to not notice it or not feel it or internalize it. Were you able to weave those experiences into picture us in the light? I think they definitely informed it. I have a thing about I almost never write anything that actually happened to me or anything based on people I actually know. So I tend to try to at least alter things a lot. But I think it definitely very much informed it. And probably the heart of it was there, if not maybe the specific details. What was it like for you being half white and half Asian, teeter-tottering between two different cultures? And did you ever feel not fully accepted in one or the other? Definitely not smooth sailing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, it's something that is like outwardly any kind of issue, but I feel like it's always something that internally I'm like always angsting over a little bit. I think there's always that sense of like in-betweenness, like you said, and not totally belonging. I remember in high school, I had this one teacher who, it must have been my junior year, because she was like, oh, you should write your college essay about being mixed race. And so we had to give these speeches in class. And she was like, you should write yours about what you've learned about being mixed race. And I was like, oh, I guess. So I did this speech. And I remember the whole time thinking, what have I learned? Like, what do I know? I don't know anything. I think it's definitely something that, yeah, is like a really big part of my identity and something I'm always trying to figure out. And I think just that sense of not quite belonging or always being sort of caught between two worlds or on various sides of things, I think that tends to be something I'm interested in storytelling, what it's for characters who are in between or feel like they don't totally have a foothold in any one particular world. How were your parents in guiding you with that? A little bit. I think I actually tend to talk more about it with my brother just because for my parents, it's not something that either of them experience personally. And, you know, they're both super open and I think they try to be like aware of things like that. But yeah, I think I tend to talk about it more with my brother who is, of course, also mixed race. He's older or younger? He's younger. He's my baby brother. Oh, that's so cute, you guys. YouTube, though, it's less cute. But. <laughs> Your big little brother. Well, I'm glad that you guys have each other to talk about. Thank you for letting me probe and get into oh, that yeah, a little bit. Sure. I appreciate it. <laughs> Let's jump into Picture Us in the Light. I would love to know what your research process is like. So this was kind of unexpected, but so the main character, Danny, is an artist. And I actually found I'm not an artist at all. I found <laughs> researching art difficult because it's really hard to write 
an interesting thing about somebody drawing. I feel like I had to have a really strong sense of what he would actually be doing and what like techniques he would be using and what would be like, informing and inspiring his art. So it wasn't just like, and then he drew another line and then another line. So that actually was a lot more complicated than I expected. I did like a ton of drawing tutorials on YouTube to try to figure out what it would actually feel and look like. Oh my God, I love that. It was really fun. It was like the most fun research I've ever done. <laughs> and then I went to a bunch of art museums, which was really fun also. I found some new artists that I was like obsessed with. I would read a lot of like, art criticism when people review like, pieces of art, which I actually didn't even know was really a thing. How was that? My grandpa's an artist, but when I try oh, to read really? that, yeah, he's an artist, which is why I got a little bit more of a leeway for having Asian parents. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so grandpa's like, if you don't let her do her acting, I will. So when grandpa steps in, <laughs> no one messes with him. And thank you, filial piety. But when I read some art critique stuff, I'll be honest, I kind of fall asleep because I think it's a little too much for me to understand or maybe just my brain is not wired that way how was that like for you it was hard I definitely (laughs) feel you like so much of it is in conversation with other art pieces right so I feel like if you like don't have a good grasp on what this particular piece is a commentary on and whatever so I was just super (laughs) it was interesting to read though like I thought just like the idea that there would be this art out there and it would spark this whole conversation it would be so controversial because you know when I look at it like I don't see any controversy I'm like oh that's beautiful but that was so interesting to me that it could be these really intense conversation pieces. Are you more into art now or at least as a viewer to go to more art gallery exhibitions or anything like that? Definitely 0% on my own art, which is not existing, <laughs> but I feel like I have more of an appreciation for yeah, going and seeing it. Oh my gosh. I was just thinking, dang, if you went into acting, you would do so well because you're so committed at what you do. Like, I love that you pulled up the YouTube videos to sketch it yourself, just to see what the flow is like and what the experience is like to be able to write from that perspective. And I was just thinking, dang, that commitment, you're already more than halfway there. Kelly, and try not to give too much away, kidnappings and selling children to make profit in Asia. How did you come across that? And how deep was the process of the research? Yeah, that was definitely really eye-opening and also so horrifying. I have a background in church. I'm a Christian and I've spent my whole life in church. And I think there's, that's also sort of a really complicated thing with a lot of identity things. But one of the things that I think the church has been a positive voice on, which I definitely can't say for everything, is the issue of human trafficking. I feel like that's something that was kind of always on my radar. And I've been involved with a lot of various groups that are trying to raise awareness or make some kind of difference. There's a group called the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition. And it was started, I think, I I might be wrong on this, but I think it might have been started around the time when the Super Bowl was coming here, because historically, Mm. the night of the Super Bowl is one of the nights when there's just this huge upsurge in trafficking. Girls are brought in from all over, often really young girls. And men go to the Super Bowl and then buy girls. Fucking disgusting. I know. And I was reading this article. It was a study of who is actually doing this. Who are these men? And they were just really ordinary men. They go to work. They have families. It makes me so mad. You have no idea. I just get... furious about this. I don't understand it. But um, Oh yeah, no, don't. I can go on about this. I know, right? It's horrible. And so I was reading a lot about that. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about the things that I buy and just how many of them are supported by child labor, or just all these horrible things that happen. I remember I was reading this one article and I want to say it was from the Atlantic, but I'm not sure, but it was about trafficking that happens in China and how it is such a pervasive problem in some senses that 
when it happens, the police often tell families, our best advice is just to move on, do what you can what? and just sort of get oh over it, which is heartbreaking. And there was this one article about this man who he'd been searching for his son for 18 years. He'd just been kidnapped and trafficked. Every time he went to the police, they were like, good luck. And it was just devastating. I think that it's hard to know what sort of you as one person living in the U.S. can do about that, but I think it was just something that really stuck with me. And then I was reading this article, I think it was in Time, and it came out in the past couple of months, but it was about a woman. She and her family adopted a girl who they were told was an orphan. And there was sort of this whole narrative around like, oh, it's this good thing to do. You know, you should go and raise these orphans from these poor countries and save them. And so there's kind of this savior narrative happening. And they adopted this girl. She was older. And so the whole time she was telling them, I'm not an orphan, my parents aren't dead. And at first they were kind of like, oh, you know, this is her trauma speaking, this is wish fulfillment, but she kept being really insistent, I have parents. And so they did more research and they looked into it and they realized that her parents were actually in fact alive. Her mother was, she was looking for her. She'd been told that her daughter was going to get some education and then come back. And so this is this like sort of common thing, especially in agencies where there's no oversight, there's this market is a horrible word to use, but there's there are people who will pay to adopt these children. And so there's this financial incentive to lie to their families and say, you're going to get them back. A lot of times the kids either aren't old enough to know what's happening, or in some cases, maybe they are, they aren't really. But, and so the family found out and they were horrified. And so they ended up bringing the girl back to her family. And there was this video of her reuniting with your parents. And it was heartbreaking thinking about how close she was to just never seeing family again. So I read a lot of those stories and tried to find ways to be involved. And yeah, it's just this huge issue. I don't know how common it is. I think there aren't really viable stats on it. But I mean, obviously, even once is like a million too many times. I know. And the thing is, I when I think of trafficking, I always think of sex trafficking or Mm -hmm. child labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. never hit me until your story where I was like, duh, people are so sick in the head where if they're Mm -hmm. willing to do things like sex trafficking and slave labor, child labor, Mm -hmm. what's to stop them from tricking families and saying, oh, they're going to get a great education. They'll be back soon. And then selling the poor children for profit Mm -hmm. to quote unquote orphan agency. It never hit me until your story. As soon as it hit, I was like, whoa, how was I never aware of this? And of course, again, in the dark world of other types of trafficking, yes, I can see how this happens as well. Thank you for bringing this to light to more people. I think this is very crucial. I know we don't have the answers. If we wanted to get more involved or are able to, is there any advice that you can, just from what you've learned with the organization, what we can do? Yeah, not too involved with the organizations at the moment, but one that I really admire is Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition, B-A-A-T-C. So that one's local. And one of the things they advise is to just kind of keep an eye out, especially like massage parlors, sometimes restaurants, sometimes like houses in a neighborhood. If you notice that massage parlors, especially people coming at really odd hours, two or three in the morning, or if you see houses where it seems like there's bars on the windows that are meant to keep people inside and not out, you can just call local law enforcement. One thing online that I've seen is a database where anytime you go stay at a hotel, if you take a picture of the hotel and upload it, it can help because then if they see advertisements posted online for advertising trafficked women, they can match up and see, okay, where is this hotel? And then one organization that I try to donate a lot to and be involved with is International Rescue Committee. They do a lot for refugee resettlement, especially vulnerable to trafficking. So they tend to have local branches where people can volunteer. 
And they also also take monetary donations. And then another organization is called International Justice Mission. And one thing they do that I think is really cool is in areas where there's a lot of this happening, they use all their resources toward pursuing justice. And so they work, you know, in the, with the local courts and with local lawyers to like free people who are trafficked and to really heavily penalize people who are doing the trafficking. So all of those orgs and all of those things are definitely heavily recommended. Much. That means a lot. I'm going to have those listed on your show notes page. So listeners listening in, please, if this is something that you feel compelled to help with, please do. And please check out Kelly's show notes page. We have it all listed, all the links there. Thank you, Kelly. I really appreciate that. I also want to touch on another thing that really stood out to me too was when you got into Danny's head, being in love with his best friend is something that's already like in the synopsis as well. You are straight. I am with a woman. I'm bisexual. So for me, and especially hearing from Moonlin, who read your book and fell in love with your story and said that she felt so close to Danny's character and it really hit home with her and she felt you spoke a lot of truth through it. What was the research process for that? like? And how were you able to get in Danny's head so authentically and and being able to see his character through his eyes with such empathy and compassion. That's so great of your girlfriend to say that's really kind. I think that the experience of falling for somebody you're not sure if there's an opening there is kind of a universal one. And so I was really interested, I think, in what that would look like for him. Danny, his best friend Harry, who he's in love with, he is also dating Regina Chan, who is one of Danny's best friends, and they have this whole history together. And so I think that was what I envisioned as a really big stumbling block for him. Here are his friends who are happy together, and they're getting over this big tragedy that has happened to them. And so he doesn't feel like it's a great time to break up his friends. And so that was something that I thought would be really weighing on him and sort of that insecurity there. I feel like also in high school, um, and you know, even through adulthood, actually, just the way we label ourselves and the things that we think that we know about ourselves, I feel like they aren't always true for our whole lives. I think I really wanted to explore that and hopefully give him a lot of freedom there. I, just, I think also I wanted to give him the freedom from having to feel locked into labeling himself because I feel like that's something that a lot of people when they're young, they don't necessarily have the language for yet. Asexuality wasn't even a term that I heard until I was much older. Demisexuality, I think Danny might actually be demisexual. And so I think things that he might be experiencing. And so I wanted to give him that full range of experience, but maybe even before he sort of had the language to express what it was, he just kind of knew he was in love with his best friend. And that was kind of the part that he felt the most strongly. That was so good. Just to probe a little bit further, did you read any books that have characters who are gay or even watching YouTube videos of kids sharing their stories? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of conversations happening right now about who has the right to write which stories and why are a lot of women writing characters who are gay. And I totally want to be sensitive to that. And I think that's a really important thing to be talking about in the community. Um, So I definitely I wanted to highlight, I guess, some gay authors that I felt they tell these stories really well. Adam Silvera, of course, his books are amazing. He also writes books about gay teenagers. Sean Hutchinson, Kosoko Jackson, he has a book coming out, I think, I want to say 2019, but I could be wrong about that. Tim Fetterly. David Levithan. There are a lot of really fantastic authors writing these stories about people coming out. This is something I notice a lot in our private Facebook group. We've had authors similarly to what you just mentioned, kind of like own voices mm-hmm. who are, let's say, 
a white person trying to write a character who she has no experience with or her mm-hmm. own personal experiences, approaching that through your lens of writing Danny's character, what words do you have for writers like those in our community who are still wanting to write and to highlight those they feel should be highlighted more in mm-hmm. books, but they feel like they don't have the right to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I feel like it's honestly such a complicated issue. I think definitely making sure that if you feel like you're the first one to tell the story and it's not yours, that might be a time to think about, are there creators who are from that background that I could lift up instead? So you're not inserting yourself into this role where you're the expert on something that you don't necessarily have personal experience in. I think in terms of doing research, if you're not really familiar with people from that background, or if you don't you know, have a lot of experience there. I think that could also be sort of something that might make you step back. And I think just being in those communities, listening so much, listening to all the conversations, interrogating maybe why you want to tell that story. That doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't by any means, but I think having a clear understanding of why that character, why that particular aspect of them can be really enlightening. Thank you so much for that. That's super helpful. What was the most challenging scene for you to write for Picture Us in the Light? You know, it's funny, actually. So in my early drafts of the story, Danny was actually with Regina and they were going to have a baby together. It was this like nuts thing. Him having feelings for Harry came like very late when I was exploring his character and thinking about, oh, like what's happening here? And so there's a scene kind of probably towards the last third of the book where they have this really big fight. And that one I think was challenging for me because I feel like in some sense, I still have the ghost of the relationships that weren't in my head a little bit from the previous drafts. And I think also I was really doubting where I'd taken it and if I wasn't hitting the beats correctly. And then I think also just thinking about that balance between like they're angry at each other and they would say horrible things to each other, but they're also super close. And I think writing conflict is always challenging for me just because I feel like it has to be so specific to who the characters are. You know, you can say these mean things, but I feel like it has to be rooted in their relationships and those things they know and love about each other to really be sort of these biting comment to really make them feel it. And so I feel like it's in conflict when I always realize if I haven't really gotten to know the characters, that's when I realize that their fights feel really generic. That was the scene that I felt like the most pressure in. And I was like, ah, I hope I'm getting this one right. So how did you work through that? Did you have friends in your writing circle or critique partners that you could throw ideas across and like, hey, how does this sound? So by this point, actually, I was far enough into it that the only person reading it was my editor. I sent it back and forth to her a couple times. And she, I have an amazing editor. She's brilliant. She's a genius. And so I think that really helped. And I think in some senses, just having her sanity check and echo back, like, okay, this is working. Or she also had an idea that she wanted this one big bombshell to be dropped actually during that scene. And so I played with that for a while and ended up really liking how it came out. So she was my entire support network for that part. That's awesome. So your editor, from what I'm learning from this podcast, is that usually your agent brings your work to the editors and then you choose, let's say there's multiple editors interested, then you interview each other in a way and then you see if your visions match and align, then you go with the one that you have a gut feeling about. So is that your journey too with your editor? Yeah, so I had an agent and then she sold my first book to my editor and then I was lucky I had an option on the second book. So she asked to see it before it was finished and I sold it on proposal. So for this one, we've been building it together from 
from the ground up, actually, which was a new experience. Did you feel you took a lot of her considerations in? I mean, I know that you guys built it up. Yes, absolutely. Many thanks to her. Thank you, Kelly's editor, for this brilliant work as well. <laughs> this show also hits on the emotional process, and I'm definitely a very emotional person. I don't know if it's my <laughs> acting background or what, but I love talking about emotions. So. Again, our community, mostly our writers, and we talk a lot about writer's block or just creative block. How many times a week do you feel blocked or even um, dissatisfied about your work? Because I feel like we all can relate. For me, actually, it tends to come in waves. With this book, I had like a two-year block on it. And there would be maybe a couple times a week, I would be like, oh, I wrote the scene and maybe it's going to work someday. But other than that, it was writing into a brick wall for years. It's horrible. And why do you think that is? I always love trying to figure out what it is like psychologically. Yeah, I don't know. And you know, at the time I was, there are a lot of people who don't believe in writer's block at all. And I remember reading a couple of those articles and I was so angry. It's <laughs> like, ah. Um, Clearly, someone is a robotic. I'm clearly very human. I have blocks all the time. And they were like, you know, you just have to get in there and write. And the thing is, I was writing. I was making the words happen. I was writing probably 300,000 words over the course of two years on this awful book, but they were just garbage. And I don't know. I think part of it is that I was trying to force a storyline that wasn't working. I was trying to have Danny and Regina dealing with this pregnancy together, and it was just not happening. I think maybe it's just the emotional heart of the story wasn't quite there. I had a sense of spot I thought I wanted to happen, which also turned out to be garbage. I think the connections between the characters. I have a friend, Rahul Kanakia, he's also a writer, and he talks about each book having something called the heart of longing. And sort of when you like distill the book down to its most essential part, what is it that the characters are longing for? And I think maybe that I hadn't quite nailed yet. And so I was having them do these things and these scenes, but none of it had any weight and there was one part where I'd written them into this like wall where there was like a bear attack and that was like the only way I could get it in the scene and I was like, okay, this is not working. There are no bears in Cupertino. I didn't have a sense of what they most wanted from each other. You know how you said earlier that you could never be an artist, but yeah. when you're sharing this with me, I'm like, you are such an artist at heart. <laughs> this is what my grandpa talks. That's how he talks about all of his artwork when he's painting and creating things. He invents paper mache like he does all these amazing pieces of work but even him he's such a master at what he does but the process is so similar to what you shared and the steps and the doubts and blockages so so i'm just like it's so crazy beautiful and in a cool way that even though as far away from an artist you think you are you truly are such an artist at heart i loved finding those little parallels between artistries i know your first book you wrote conviction and your second book picture us in the light between these two books do you know a common theme running through both of them in your writing process that pulls you back or holds you back from charging forward with your work? I will say plot. So I think that is a big thing. So when I wrote Conviction, this has never happened to me before, but I had this 60-day rush where I was just totally in the story. I'm writing all the time, like flowed. It came like so naturally. I was like so immersed in the writing. It was like amazing. It was like this high. And then it was like, of course, garbage. And I sent it to my agent. She's like, ah, so I had to rechange it all. But I feel like I'm maybe always chasing that same feeling. And then when it doesn't happen, I'm like, oh, it's going so slowly. What's going on? Why is this not working? And I think I almost tend to forget how much you just have to end up deleting and how much you have to write and write and write to get to the heart of the story and figure out the characters and use this backstory. And I feel like I always want to rush the process, especially now that I'm not just writing for myself. I'm writing, you know, for my publisher and stuff. I think that is something that 
has been kind of a struggle process wise for me. And do you see other ways of how you've evolved from first book to second book? I think I'm hopefully a little bit better with plot. I think in just terms of like mentally thinking through it. And one thing my editor told me that really has stuck with me that I always try to keep in mind when I'm writing is your story can't be, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It has to be, and then this happened, and so this happened, and so this happened. And thinking about one thing leading to the next. And I think definitely a lot of my early drafts of, you know, stories that I've shelved over the years, it was a lot of this happened, then this happened. And so thinking about how everything is interconnected and how every action leads to a reaction has been really useful for me. And that you came to discovery by yourself. That was more my editor being, okay, let's think about why these are happening in this order. So that was really helpful. Thank you again, Miss Editor. Yes, she's a genius. I'm going to squeeze in two listener questions. The first one being from Lisa Moore Ramey. She said, hi, Kelly. Hi, Lisa. She's so excited that you're on the podcast. She's in love with your cover. Is it something that you were dreaming of. And secondly, no pun intended, how was it writing your second sophomore book? So we covered that already on contract for it. If it was already under contract, what was it like writing something that was already sold? It was horrible. <laughs> I felt a lot of pressure specifically, which was my fault. If I had clarified this with my editor, it wouldn't have been a problem, but to match what I was writing to the proposal I'd sold. And it ended up evolving and totally changing. But I think I was just like, oh no, I told them I was going to write this. So I need to write this. And so even when it wasn't working, I was still really trying to force it. Next time I would do a lot better just knowing that, of course, they understand that there's this vague idea and then the book is going to go where it's going to go. The cover, I'm in love with my cover. Oh my gosh. I had no idea what it was going to look like. And then my cover designer had put together this mock-up and my editor sent it to me. I was really intrigued by it. I think it was different enough from the final that I still couldn't quite picture what it was going to look like. And they told me about the artists they'd hired to draw it. And of course, I stalked him on Instagram. <laughs> I loved his work, but it's mostly shirtless women. And I was like, oh, I'm curious how this is going <laughs> to translate to cover. When they sent me the final one, I was totally blown away. I think everyone involved just did such an amazing job. I really love it. I'm so happy you do because I love it too. As oh, soon as you. No no joke. As soon as we received it, I was like, oh, this is a sexy looking cover. It is beautiful. Yeah. And the colors are so great. The way he I put the colors the together. Colors. I was very impressed. So the next question we have from Catherine Locke. She says, OMG, she's so excited that you're going to be on. Hi, Catherine. She would love to know how you mentally and emotionally approached conviction. It's one of her favorite young adult fictions ever. And she thinks it's one of the most empathetic books she's ever read. And she's curious if you were conscious of that empathy going into the process or whether you had to nurture it. And if you did have to nurture it, how did you do that? I wanted it to be an empathetic story. I wanted it to be ultimately originally in the original draft, a story of redemption and reconciliation. And I think in some ways it became the opposite of that. There was a character that I thought I was going to sort of redeem at the end. And then as the writing went on, I realized I didn't think it was possible. I felt like he had all these chances and he'd kind of made it too late. But but then the sort of things I'd imagined happening ended up happening in another relationship in the story. And so that was kind of interesting. I was writing it when I was dealing with issues of empathy and forgiveness in my own life. And it was an emotional journey. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what it was that you were dealing with in your own personal life? Yeah, totally. It was actually about faith. I was at a point where I was feeling the world was such garbage. I was writing it after Oscar Grant was killed. You know, people have been living with these horrible, horrible things for so long, but I think I was just, maybe it was the first time that I was sort of aware of something happening 
my community that felt like such a huge injustice. And I was, you know, why do people exist? If there's a God, which I believe that there is, you know, why does he keep putting up with people? Why are we here to do all these awful things for each other? And so I think, and then, you know, just thinking about myself and just the ways that I feel like I continually mess up over and over again and in my own sort of relationship with God. And so I was just really struggling with how many times are we going to be forgiven? Like, what does it mean? What if you're forgiven and then you still mess up again. So I think I was just thinking about those things on loop for months. And that was the sort of mental space I was in when I was writing. Well, thank you for creating something so powerful and beautiful from something that was dark. Kelly, I would love to wrap it up with one of our last two questions, which is what is the proudest moment in your career so far? That's such a nice question. I think it was when I got to tell my parents that my first book sold. (gasps) Oh, it was so nice. I, you know, they've been so supportive and for a while, actually, But at the time when you're waiting for a book to sell, it feels like it's been forever and I'm sure it hadn't been. But I got to call my dad up at work just out of nowhere and he was totally surprised. And then I remember calling my mom and I was supposed to go take care of my grandma that day. So I call her at school and she's like, oh, what's going on? You know, are you not going? What's going on? And I was like, I sold my book. And she was so surprised. That was definitely my proudest moment. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. How did you guys celebrate? I was pregnant and I was like extremely sick. So I think I did nothing. I laid at home, but in my heart, I celebrated. Oh, but that's still so sweet. I'm so happy that your parents sounded so proud. Yeah, that's really nice. I'm thrilled that you got to open up a lot about your family and your upbringing. And thank you so much for letting me pry and peek in there and letting us all listen in on it. That was really, really moving. I'd love to wrap it up with what is your recommended book for us to check out? So many wonderful books. (laughs) My favorite book I've read lately is one that I am reading right now, um, which is called The Downstairs Girl. It's by Stacey Lee, who is the author of Under a Painted Sky. Yes, yes. Yes. She's so great. Oh my gosh. And I love her books because I feel like she has such a distinctive voice. Even though she writes about these horrible things happening, it's so uplifting and there's so much generosity and kindness and hope in her stories. And The Downstairs Girl, I think, doesn't come out until, I want to say 2019. I could be wrong, but it's so much fun. It's so great. And if listeners can't wait until then, her second most recent book, Outrun the Moon, is absolutely fantastic. It's set during the earthquake in Chinatown in the 1800s. I wish mm-hmm. I remembered the date, but I'm not sure <laughs> out there. And I feel like all her books are just so her that anyone you read, you're going to pick up and be like, oh my gosh, this is such a Stacey Lee book. I love that. There's a unique stand to it. Yeah, it's so great. Let me squeeze in one more question. What are some small manageable steps you'd advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I think the biggest thing for me actually that I tend to feel like opens me up is to just be really aware of all the stories that are happening around me, just like in the news or just in people and to start asking those like what if questions. Like if you see the headline, wondering about the people behind them or just thinking about ways that you could get into the minds of characters in similar situations. Also, I feel like it's a little bit counterintuitive for me, but I always feel like I need to be like really grinding and just writing, writing, writing all the time. But I feel like actually stepping away can be really helpful. There's times when I have a block. So definitely give yourself permission to do that. If you feel like you're in this rut, nothing's happening. I promise that when you step back, you will start missing it. And I think that's always a good place to be in when you feel like, oh, this idea comes to you that you're like, wait, I I do have to write that down. I do have to start working on that. That was so good. Kelly, tell us where we can find you on social media. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly Loy Gilbert. Awesome. Kelly, you are so amazing. Thank you so much for that amazing, amazing conversation. And that wraps up our episode with Kelly Loy Gilbert. Kelly, I so love talking with you. You just radiate kindness and I am grateful we had the chance to chat. Thank you for such an inspiring conversation. 
Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Kelly over on Twitter at Kelly Loy Gilbert and check out the incredibly helpful writing prompt that she created for our community by heading over to her show notes page at 88cupsoft.com slash podcast slash Kelly dash Lloyd dash Gilbert. Don't forget, we're also giving away a copy of Picture Us in the Light to two lucky 88 Cups of Tea listeners. And Kelly is taking over our Instagram stories today. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch her takeover and for the giveaway directions. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time, and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating, and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.